Why is Ukraine important to the Jewish world? How can we look at Ukrainian and Jewish history in a way that treats strategies with justice, but also discovers parallels and interconnections? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to Rabbi Jakobson, a Jewish scholar, best-selling author and founding dean of the Meaningful Life Center in New York. Rabbi Jakobson is the author of the best-selling book Toward a Meaningful Life that has sold over 400,000 copies to date and has been translated into numerous languages. I talked to Rabbi Jacobson within our podcast series Thinking in Dark Times, which seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Before we start, let me remind you that Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, a Ukrainian media NGO. We are based in Ukraine and you can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Rabbi Jacobson, uh, welcome to this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So it's it's very interesting to talk to you. It will be very interesting to our audience, I hope, because uh, we always talk about Ukraine right now as a kind of a multicultural country, as a country with plural identities. And the Jewish part of the Ukrainian civic identity is now very important. Uh, we are trying in the past decades to develop this understanding of interconnections between Ukrainian and Jewish community. We're trying to rethink our uh, literary canon or our artistic cultural canon so that it engages also the, the Jewish part of it. When you are talking to your Jewish community and when you are talking about Ukraine, what are you telling them? Why Ukraine is important for the global Jewish community? Well, I should add that I also have a pretty large non-Jewish audience, so it's equally important for them as well. So I'll, I'll divide my response in two, in two parts, okay? You know, the universal uh, dimension and the Jewish angle. So we'll start with the universal, which includes everybody. Um, from a Jewish perspective, and I say Jewish, I mean not just for Jews, but a historical perspective, the fact is that we are all one large organism, meaning the whole human race. And when one part of the organism is hurting, we're all hurting. I think uh, that's an important lesson. It's not just us versus them. So when you have an unprovoked attack against a country, Ukraine, um, it should be concerned every human being on earth, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish. Um, frankly, this wasn't an attack on Jews per se. It was an attack on, uh, on a sovereign state called Ukraine. Um, so um, that, that's the first thing that I think is a, 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 maybe it's a given. It's an obvious statement. But we know not, nothing is really obvious because we've seen silence in the face of atrocities. So that's, that's one thing that the global community has a responsibility to protect uh, each other and to call out anyone that uh, breaks the rules, so-called of engagement, the rules of a, of, a, of a decent and civil civilization. And the way to resolve issues is not through war, it's through conversation, through dialogue, even through debate. And I think it's critical to understand that because I face, to be very honest, people tell me that people who are pro-Russia, and they say, well, Russia had good reason. They provoked by the West, by, the, by NATO, etc. But even if so, there's also ways to deal with things. And we've learned from World War II and World War I and previous wars that this is just not the way is to bully or to uh, use force. So the, that's, I think, a, a general statement, period. Uh, specifically, when you're dealing with uh, the history of Ukraine and the history of Russia and the history of all the Soviet republics, um, what happened after the Russian Revolution and the events of the 20th century, and then the breakup of the Soviet Union in the, in the 80s and the 90s, and respecting that as well. We understand there's the fragile element of it, but nevertheless, again, it's a critical thing for people to understand uh, 
the background of what we're dealing with. And we, we should be expecting a civil approach. Now, I want to move over from that to the Jewish, since that was your primary question. There's no question that the Jewish people, per se, have a deep, deep, long history in Ukraine that goes back over a thousand years. Some of the, all the cities we hear in the news are really cities that we all grew up with. Anyone that, uh, cities like Zhytomyr, uh, cities like Kharkov, I'm pronouncing it in the Yiddish and the Jewish way. I know their names have been somewhat changed pronunciation, but we're all familiar with them. These are places of major histor- historical value. Some of the greatest giants in Jewish thought and Jewish leadership grew up and lived in these cities. So much of, of Jewish life today really was born in the Ukraine. I speak on a personal note. I grew up in a Chabad Lubavitch community. So, for example, our Rebbe was born in Nikolaev, which is uh, in Ukraine, and, uh, and so many others. And we are, there are burial places, there are holy sites, holy sites. So this country is saturated with Jewish uh, life and Jewish blood, sweat, and tears. So therefore, from a Jewish point of view, it, it's acutely relevant, um, in addition to what I said before on a universal level, because in a way this is a country that has been so much part of our own history. Um, to be very frank, Jews also have mixed feelings because we know during uh, World War II, not all the Ukrainians were so nice to the Jews either. So, so not, not to suggest that uh, one, one evil uh, is, uh, cancels out another, but there's a, there's a complex history. Um, but the, the, the key thing to remember as well, that the displacement of the communities since this war broke out over a year ago, what is it now, a year and uh, two months, three months, has displaced major Jewish communities. Entire cities had to be evacuated. I know personally families and rabbis that had to leave the community due to the bombings and due to the entire upheaval. So uh, it created a major refugee crisis. So this, uh, the Jewish community did rise to the occasion, raising a lot of money to help support, provide supplies, food, and so on. So it has, a, it has that element that's a very powerful one. So when I speak about it, I like to always emphasize the rich Jewish history of Ukraine. And you hear all these cities. And, and it's also somewhat, uh, in a way, like a certain serendipity here, because you feel like of all places in the world, these are the cities that were so much part of our life are now under attack. So it has a very deep sentimental value to that as well. And... Um, and then, of course, I want to conclude with the most important thing, maybe above all, that human ra- the human beings, as I mentioned before, and especially the Jewish people, who have been so much on the, on the, on the persecution end, meaning being persecuted and being victims throughout history, we have an acute uh, and sensitive spot for any type of atrocity. So there's a certain moral obligation that I think every Jew on earth, you know, there's an expression in the Bible that says, be kind to the stranger because you are once a stranger in a strange land. So we acutely feel the sense of the need to be able to empathize and to uh, feel part of and feel a solidarity with a country under siege uh, in every possible way, whether it's financial aid or it's moral or uh, psychological or emotional support. So this is part of what I, I say and I have been saying over the last year or so since this war broke out. And uh, when we look back at this at, at this history, it is really very complicated. And I think we, we really need to be frank of, of talking frankly about this. So uh, we have um, kind of a different uh, different views on, on, on the same historical moments. For example, for Jewish community, the the um, the uprising of Bogdan Khmelnytsky in the 17th century that was a huge tragedy and huge crime. Uh, For Ukrainians, it is, on the contrary, considered to be one of the major elements of Ukrainian nation building because it was emancipation from the Polish uh, Rzeczpospolita. Uh, If we talk about 18th century, also the the Haidamaki movement, which which also produced lots of pogroms, especially in Uman, by the way. And Uman is, is now one of the towns I wanted I wanted to to, uh, to talk about but for Ukrainians again this is this is um, a, a part of the national movement 
When we talk about the Second World War, indeed, there is a, a very unpleasant stories for about uh, about Ukrainians. But at the same time, Ukrainians are part of those nations who saved Jews as well, and who are uh, who have m- many individuals in this in this list. And and today we are kind of a rather, I would say. When uh, when I'm traveling across Ukraine, you mentioned Zhitomer, we can talk about uh, the shtetls of of the western Ukraine, who are practically many of them do not have any more traces of this very rich Jewish life. But at the same time, you are talking in one of your videos, you are talking about this resurrection of the kind of a new life of the Jewish community in the past decades. And you talk about uh, Kharkiv, I can talk about Dnipro with this big Jewish center, menorah center. We can talk about Uman. And I feel that this kind of a similar process is going on because both Ukrainians and Jews were, of course, in Eastern Europe in in different aspects. There were nations that uh, that suffered from the domination of of the empire, for example, of Russian empire, and and between them there were difficult difficult stories and different stories, but now this this movement of the new emancipation, new knowledge about each other, and therefore finally we have a, a president with Jewish origin. Do you feel that that maybe f- this is the moment in history when Ukrainian community and Jewish community are, are really have the 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 chance to? Uh, to know each other much better than before. Absolutely. And I think this only adds to the tragedy because uh, from a Jewish point of view, as you just uh, emphasized, there's been a tremendous uh, renaissance of Jewish life in Ukraine, which is surprising because you know many thought it was uh, part of our past history. And frankly, Russia as well. Um, so... This whole upheaval is like so disturbing in that sense because we um, we really built all this up. Synagogues were going up. You mentioned the Menorah Center. In every major city and minor city in Ukraine, um, a type of um, almost like a uh, uh, even a haven, a, a thriving of, of Jewish life. So this whole thing is like so um, disturbing in that sense. Like, like why? Um, I mean, I have to acknowledge Interestingly, you know, you mentioned some of the historical events. Usually Jews are scapegoats when things like this happen. It's interesting to me that not the Russians and not the Ukrainians are blaming Jews here, um, which, which is always an easy, convenient scapegoat. Just pointing that out. I know you didn't ask me that question. I just was <laughs> just interesting side note. Um, so the fact that, that things were, I mean, basically from 1990 till the present. So we're talking about a good 30 years. There's been a growth, a renaissance, economic, religious, spiritual. And uh, so it, so this th- took everybody by surprise because, like, it's almost senseless. Things were, you know, it was, again, Ukraine was not building up some type of military. They weren't being belligerent and, uh, and so on. So it seems to me like really such a senseless type of, of, of destruction and, and disturbance of life as it was building up. And I agree with you totally. I think despite the past history, and I'm sure there's always, you know, there's anti-Semitism everywhere to a certain extent, but the fact that the, the, that, Jew, that Jews in Ukraine were succeeding and prospering and many making money and so on um, was, I, I look at it as a boon and a, uh, and a positive for the whole Ukrainian community. I mean, look, the president of Ukraine is, is Jewish. Um, so th- that alone tells you something about the integration, um, regardless of his level of, uh, of identification as a Jew or, uh, or, or observance. But the point being that, that that tells you. So I think that that really just um, magnifies uh, the, the so-called humanitarian and religious uh, uh, disruption that this has caused. I think we really can see the parallels in our, in our history, and there is a work of Ukrainian writers, intellectuals to um, to integrate it and understand it. For example, I can refer to a wonderful novel by Sofia Andrukhovich, our one of our writers and my friend, which is called Amadoka, which really 
is a thick novel and 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 very big and and very profound. It tries to um, you know assess critically the Second World War. It tries to dig deeper in the Jewish history and Jewish culture. It talks about the Hasidic uh, tradition. It talks about Baal Shem Tov in very very interesting way, and it compares Baal Shem Tov, for example, with with Ukrainian wise men of the 18th century, Horis uh, Kovoroda, and and there is an attempt to to see these histories histories together. At the same time, when we look at the 20th century, there is this the the the, the, the crime of Holocaust and the big tragedy. In Ukraine, with Ukrainians, we talk about the crime of Holodomor, which is a different thing, technically different, of course, but in in the scale of crime, it is it is quite comparable. But uh, also tragically, if we look at the way how the Soviet regime was uh, exterminating the Ukrainian intelligentsia in the 1930s, it was doing the same with the Jewish intelligentsia in 1950s. And I, I always say provocatively that Holocaust, after the Second World War, after the victory of the Nazism, Holocaust actually continued in the Soviet Union, in the, in the Stalinist era, in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Uh, and, and therefore, this probably can explain this kind of a very unpleasant anti-Semitism which was ruling in the Soviet Union after the Second World War. So do you see these parallels between uh, between our cultures? And maybe this is the point where we can um, where we can find lots of lots of things in common. And one more thing is that there is a reappreciation of what was going in the 1920s. There is a book, for example, by Canadian Ukrainian scholar Miroslav Shkandri about this whole Jewish movement with Kulturliga and, and, and other phenomenon which uh, were uh, uh, under the first Ukrainian independence 1917 and then moved farther in these uh, Ukrainian avant-garde movements in which Jewish artists played a huge role actually. Um, so yeah, I, th- I, I think there is, there is a time to, to look at our histories together. What do you think? I definitely can uh, intellectually uh, distinguish and and uh, recognize the commonalities between the Ukrainian people and the Jewish people, both how they suffered and also their victories. But it's very important, since we're being candid, um, uh, and this, of course, I've heard many times, especially for many Jews, um, they feel a certain uh, sensitivity when atrocities are compared to each other. I remember I was once at an event and somebody was asked the question, what does he think about the anti-Semitism of the Nazis? And he began to say, well, they were also anti-Gypsies and they were also anti-Communists and they were also anti. And you can imagine the Jewish people in the audience did not appreciate that because it sounded almost like a, uh, a whitewashing of some of the crimes. And uh, so... For example, to say that, uh, that, that I suffered and you suffered, and, and I suffered at your hands and you suffered at my hands, you have to be very careful, especially on an emotional level. So again, intellectually, there's many, much room to have conversations, but you want to be, avoid the issue that anyone's trying to whitewash or minimize certain crimes by saying, hey, we also suffered like you did. And I'm just you know, being very honest and open about it. But... That that being said, and that qualification, there's definitely room because the fact of the matter is, as I said earlier, an atrocity against one human being is an atrocity against all human beings. Uh, that's how it works. So the Jews, as they call them sometimes, the miners' canary, perhaps were the ones that were always on the forefront, that whenever a, some totalitarian, some fascist attacked people, they often attacked the Jews first. But it was very uh, easy to move on. You know, Hitler did not just uh, attack the Jews, and he mentioned Stalin. So I think it's just important to make that distinction. And then there's, there's definitely, uh, you know, there, there are people in the gulag or in the concentration camps that were Jewish and also not Jewish. But especially for Jews, they're very sensitive when it comes to that. And I'm sure you understand that. 
Sure, sure. It's not about you know whitewashing of crimes. Uh, I'm rather saying that there is another part of the coin is that, for example, I personally think that the crimes of Stalinism were not properly condemned. And uh, finally, we have what is going on right now is a continuation of that. It's probably a consequence of the fact that the crimes of Stalinism were not properly assessed and condemned. And therefore, people like Putin uh, consider themselves as a continuators of that because they were actually not punished. I'm, I'm only talking about this. Let me, let me address one of the important... I, may I ask you, may I, may, if you don't mind, may I ask you a question since we're on the topic? Sure. What do you what do you think about that? You know, I'm not here. I'm not a uh, a uh, representing in any way, uh, Mr. Putin. But the fact of the matter is interesting. He does not target Jews, which would seem to be an easy way for him to get away. You know, to use as a scapegoat. What do you think about that? I mean, again, this is not a defense of his attack on Ukraine. That's it's just I'm just thinking what you think about. It. I, I I always wonder why the Jews are not being. Uh, targeted as they always were in the past. Look, uh, I would disagree with you because uh, when we analyzed what Russian propaganda was saying about Zelensky, for example, in 2019, not the official Russian propaganda, but all all these narratives which were spread by Russian trolls in 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 some very dubious websites, they were promoting this idea about Jewishness, about the uh the, the 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 that he's part of this Jewish conspiracy etc so this narrative was present i think why it's not put forward on like big screens big tv channels is that putin is trying to say that he's anti-fascist right and while he's anti-fascist of course he cannot be like anti-semite and then and then there is a very, uh, very comfortable narrative of Russian propaganda that Ukrainians are anti-Semites, the Ukrainians are Nazis, etc. So they're using this narrative, and that's much more comfortable for them. Okay. But l let me uh, let me ask Let's you about yeah. yeah let let me ask you about um, about Uman, which is which suffered in the first days of the big war. I remember this Russian missile killing a, a boy on the bicycle, if not, I'm not mistaken. And recently, this horrific uh, missile attack on a residential house in Uman. And by the way, uh, Russian missile attacks on residential houses is something very common, uh, tragically and criminally in this, in this war. We have seen a lot of this. We have seen uh, a building in, in Dnipro. Uh, as we said, Dnipro is also one of the important centers of Jewish culture today. Uh, we have seen it in, in Uman. <clears throat> we have seen it in many other places. And uh, usually these are rockets which are targeting something. We don't know what. And I'm not sure they were really targeting these residential buildings. Maybe they were targeting something else, but as they are maybe imprecise, unprecise, they, they, they just go into the residential building and kill kill really dozens of people and uh, this makes an Uman for for our listeners is is a beautiful town in the center of ukraine it's very very far from from the front line and there is actually nothing to target and the, it's it's a really very important place for for jewish culture right now and i, I think in ukraine it's one of the most jewish towns right now uh, can can you tell me about? Can you tell your our audience about Uman? Why it is important? We know this story about uh, Tzadik Nachman, for example, right? And uh, m maybe you will you can tell us why this place is important. And also, I would I would like you to tell us more about different figures of Jewish culture um, that are linked to Ukraine and that are so much important. I also I mentioned already Baal Shem Tov. Uh, maybe you can develop on these figures. Yeah, I mean, there's so many, uh, so many cities, and so many great leaders associated with Ukraine. It's probably hard; <laughs> we couldn't even cover them all. Um, uh, let's begin. Since the Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement, let's begin with him historically. So he was. Uh, he grew up and he lived in Mezhebush. Um I'm not sure what it's called today but I believe it's a city in Ukraine. 
and um, uh, he was also his, t his students were associated with cities like Anipoli. I'm using the the Yiddish, uh, uh, perhaps the the older names for them. So I hope that's all right because uh, I'm not sure all the new ones. Um, so so it was a part of the world that was obviously suffering greatly. You know, you mentioned Shalmaninsky, you mentioned uh, those tragedies for the Jewish people at least. But in those times, because of the serious oppression and poverty, um, uh, we know movements began to spring up to try to revive and try to um, revitalize Jewish life. And one of the major ones was the Baal Shem Tov. He was named Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov. And then he in turn had students and these students had students, and many of them stayed in Ukraine. Some moved, some were in Poland, some were in uh, Belarus, white Russia, some moved to other, other, other countries, surrounding countries, but many were in Ukraine. So Ukraine cities are filled with these, what they call Rebbes. A Rebbe is like a spiritual leader. And though in the beginning it was one Rebbe, Balshemtov, but then with his students, they moved to different cities and they were associated with those cities. Rab Nachman, the tzaddik Rab Nachman that you mentioned, so he ultimately he lived was born and lived in Ukraine. His burial place was in Uman. Um, now, burial place has a significant role in Jewish life. It's considered to be a sacred place, a place where a tzaddik, a righteous person, is laid to rest. And people, for example, in Israel, you have Hebron, the the in the where Hebron, where you have the burial place of Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob and their wives, Sarah, Rivka, Leah. Um, so these places are always historically known, the places that people go to pray. Uh, they see them as sacred places because it's sacred ground. So especially Uman, because the Rabbi Rab Nachman, the Tzaddik Rab Nachman had said, anyone who comes and prays at my gravesite, will, I, will, I will beseech uh, God on their behalf. So Uman became... Over the years, especially recently, a phenomenon where tens of thousands of people make a pilgrimage, usually uh, the large ones, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the high holidays, the Jewish high holidays, and it becomes a, it's a major, major event year after year. So that has become known in that sense. But again, going back to the history, I mentioned Mezhibush, I mentioned Kharkov, I mentioned uh, um, Nikolaev. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of other, Anipol, uh, let me have to refresh my memory, but I'm sure of other cities. So they were associated with different, as I say, tzaddikim, righteous people who had their, their, uh, their community there. Their, uh, and, um, and the cities were identified so much with these leaders. And these leaders were uh, revered. So you could imagine in, in Judaism, there's a concept that holiness, sanctity never disappears. Even after someone dies, even after years that pass, the good deeds that were done in our location are considered to be, they saturate and they somewhat get absorbed in the very ground. So we call it holy ground. And in that sense, Ukraine has many such holy sites, holy places, which again only uh, uh, magnifies the, 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 the tragedy in so many ways. So I, I really admire this very specific Hasidim culture of, of stories, of paradoxes. And uh, of course, we as, as Ukrainian philosophers, we came to this culture through Martin Buber, for example, right? And his Hasidim stories. But then w when, I, when I'm reading about Baal Shem Tov, it, it also like, it, it really creates this fantastic thing of a very personal relation to God uh, on this this very profound spiritual storytelling, this very paradoxical thinking. What, what are the origins of this? Can we, can we find these origins in this specific uh, climate of Eastern Europe or rather they are the natural developments of, uh, of Jewish spiritual tradition? A very good question. When, to go back a little, let's go back a few millennia. Remember the central, the central Jewish community was centered in Israel, what's called the promised land, the biblical promised land, holy land, that's so much part of biblical 
verses and promises that God promises Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, our patriarchs, that you will go to the promised land. So coming to Israel became the central center, the center of Jewish life, and was, uh, and was, and was personified by the holy temples. The first holy temple being built by King Solomon, and then later the second holy temple built by Herod in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Till today, that Temple Mount is now the holy site of uh, later Islam and, and before that Christianity. But Jerusalem, the holy city, the holiest city on earth for so many, especially for the Jewish people. So you go to the Western Wall, till this day, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people visit that wall. This was just the outer wall of the temple. But once the, first the Babylonians destroyed the temple, and then 400 and, um, and, and 490 years later, the Romans destroyed the second temple, so the Jews were expelled from Israel. They were exiled. They were forced to leave. Some left to the east. That would be more the, we'll call it the Arab Muslim countries. Some went to Europe. Some went to Africa. And, and slowly the transmigration began. And this was a big, big challenge because, as we know, once you lose your country, imagine, imagine there's no Ukraine, God forbid, or there's no uh, any country. Every country needs a, geograph- a geographical location. So the Jewish leaders at the time were debating what to do. How do we preserve a sense of, nation, of nationalism, a sense of nationhoods, of statehood, without a, without a physical location? And the interesting thing is there was a great sage, his name was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and he had access to the Romans because they respected him. So the emperor said to him, I will grant you one request. Even though we've destroyed your temple, we've destroyed your, your, basically your your hometown, your center of your your community. And his request was, he knew that he could not beg that they should preserve Jerusalem. So he said, give me the city of Yavna, it was a city, Yavna was a city outside of Israel with its scholars. Basically, he established, based on a prophecy from Ezekiel, the concept of building essentially synagogues and houses of, of worship and houses of study. What we would call today universities. But these were universities of Judaism, of Jewish teachings. And that became a model that as the Jews were dispersed Wherever they would go, they would build very strong communities. They would come somewhere, make sure there's a synagogue, a a school, a place where people can congregate. And as a matter of fact, in the book of Ezekiel, he calls it a mini sanctuary, a mini temple, like a temple in microcosm. Because he says to God, you've now exiled your people. How will they build their lives? He said, wherever they go, let them build me. Migdash Ma'at in Hebrew means a mini sanctuary. So this is the historical basis for what Jews did throughout history, which frankly I think is underappreciated because everyone asked the question, how did this small little nation without, uh, for so many years without a country, without money, without an empire, without armies, how do they su- survive? The, the interesting, the Dalai Lama once asked me that question. I met the Dalai Lama because he too is in exile. So I, I said to him because we built spiritual centers that made sure to preserve. And I think that is the history that led to ultimately that wherever the Jews would go, wherever wherever they were led, and it wasn't always by will, they were often expelled, as we know, after the Spanish Spanish, uh, Inquisition, the Spanish expulsion of the Jews in 1492, where did they go? Wherever they went, they made sure to put in deep roots. And I think that's the history behind the Ukrainian uh, Jewish presence, and these rebbes, they continued that type of approach, that we're not just here, we're going to build strong communities, communities that offer services, spiritual services, material services, charity, free loan societies, everything that constitutes a, a, a religious life they built in these towns with the hope that one day we shall return to Israel, to our homeland, which is, of course, happening as we speak. But that is the, really the thing, the historical background behind these strong so-called uh, beachheads, if you wish, these strong bastions of Jewish life in these various cities that we mentioned. That's very interesting and, and really um, admiring. 
let me let me ask you about uh, the language, um, because in Eastern Europe, a very important element was the Yiddish language, and uh, I've I've looked at some of your videos, and I I've mentioned that you are also um, using sometimes Yiddish. Uh, do you right now do 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 you what what can you say about the Yiddish language because in Ukraine of course we don't hear it anymore although we understand that so much of the territory of Ukraine was actually speaking the Yiddish language and there is so much uh, there is a literature in Yiddish there is uh, there is so so many beautiful songs in Yiddish and uh, i frankly admire listening to to the songs in Yiddish Uh, what can you say about the language and it, its future? <laughs> That's, I don't know if you know this, but my father was a Yiddish journalist. He actually was a writer and publisher and editor of Yiddish newspapers, just as an aside. Maybe it's not an aside. Um, very fascinating question about what Yiddish is. Let's just give a little history. You know, where does this language come from? So I think in continuing the theme I was addressing before, in order, especially due to the persecution, in order to preserve a type of Jewish brotherhood, if you wish, sisterhood, community, it was building, as I said, these institutions. But I think as a result of that, the Jews also developed their own language, which is really a, uh, a hybrid. Yiddish is essentially very similar to German, but it's very organic, which means it grew. Like when they went to Ukraine, you'll find Ukrainian or Russian words in the in the Yiddish language. They adapted, and there and so Yiddish became like it's our our personal like intimate language, like our family language. And even though it originates approximately probably over over a thousand years ago in Germany, but then it developed different dialects, different accents in. Uh, Countries like, you know, talk about Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe. Uh, Hungarian accent is different than a Polish accent in Yiddish and so on. And of course, with Yiddish came literature and came uh, humor and came life stories. You know, our grandmothers and grandfathers with Yiddish expressions it has its own very unique uh, personality. Like, you know, like uh, the classic one, chutzpah. Like the, 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 the joke goes like this. How do you say chutzpah in Yiddish? That's called chutzpah, because chutzpah originates from Yiddish. And Yiddish also adapted a lot of Hebrew in it. So if you were to analyze the language itself, you'll probably find 10, 15 different languages within it, with the primary being a German side and Hebrew, and then each country adding its own uh, elements. You know, so I, I, for example, I speak fluent Yiddish. It's my first language. But a lot, of la a lot of it, I'm not even sure if it's Yiddish or it's Russian. Like, for example, kasha. You know, we use it as kasha, is porridge. Um, I think it's a Russian word, if I if I recall correctly. We have it also in, in Ukrainian as well. <laughs> okay, there you go. Um, so so this this so it's really it, it, and it's it's a beautiful language because it's it's not just a language; it captures a life. You know, there's certain words in Yiddish that describe tragedy, uh, joy, uh, pleasure, the, the the real human condition. People like Shalom Aleichem and some other of the classic Yiddish writers really used Yiddish to become a, a language of, of a people and all their joys and sorrows all captured in the language. Um, now, as assimilation would have it, as countries, as we've developed, as Yiddish has lost a lot of its uh, people that don't speak it anymore. For example, once they came to America, Many people who spoke Yiddish began to speak English. So I, as I said, my, ma my mama language, my mama Loshen is the language. My mother tongue is Yiddish. But as we grew older, my younger siblings, English became more prominent. I always spoke Yiddish with my father and even with my mother, but later a little more English. And it's, it's sad. It's a sad commentary. I don't know what can be done about it, but definitely it's not the same as it was. In 1940s, There were actually 10 Yiddish daily newspapers in New York alone because all the immigrants only spoke Yiddish. If they wanted a job, they had to open a Yiddish newspaper. But within 20, 30 years, in the 60s and 70s, almost all of them now also could read English. 
So it slowly, Yiddish journalism started to wane. And uh, so there's still, uh, I would say there's still uh, bastions, there's still communities where Yiddish is the primary language, but it's less than it used to be. Um, uh, Ukraine, I would say probably 100% of the Jewish population, Yiddish was probably their first language. I'm, I'm almost, I'm, I can't say 100%, but a big number um, for many years. Uh, and then, then uh, things changed, you know. Um, so it's one of the changes in life. I, uh, Eli Wiesel, who was a good friend of mine, used to tell me he spoke a fluent Yiddish. Yiddish was his first language. He says, what shall we do? We think in Yiddish, but it's expressed now in French, in, in German, in English, in, in Spanish, in Russian, in Ukrainian. I actually started learning Yiddish when I was younger uh, because I knew some German. I, I, I read in German. And I, I understand in German. And, and then uh, I, I decided, look, Yiddish is so wonderful. And I, I started, I, I bought a, a manual. Uh, of course, it was kind of a difficult to go through uh, Hebrew alphabet, but I also kind of started learning Hebrew alphabet through, through Yiddish. But then if you listen to Yiddish songs, uh, when I understood German, I understood many, many things in, in, in actually by simply knowing German, uh, but at the same time, it sounds differently, uh, absolutely differently. It sounds like maybe softer. It's it's and and there is more more sadness in these songs uh, and 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 more. Yeah, yeah. I would say uh, some personal touch, but uh, at the same time, there is also some very specific joy in these songs as well. Let me according to my now, according to my recollection, I think was Yiddish not. In the early 20th century, one of the formal state languages in Ukraine? Yes, because when Ukrainian Independent Republic in 1917 uh, was founded, uh, Yiddish was one of the languages. And on the banknotes of uh, money, of hryvnia, there was uh, inscriptions in Yiddish. I think it was Ukrainian, uh, Yiddish, Polish and Russian, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so yes, Yiddish, and uh, as I told you, these um, the very prominent Jewish artists were actually in the ministries uh, uh, of Ukrainian People's Republic. So it was this attempt, you know, to construct this identity that would encompass the uh, the Yiddish-speaking Jewish community as well. Because in 1917, there was still so many Jewish people in Ukraine, and then of course. Uh, the, 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 there were tragic events first, the pogroms, and and then I mean a, a lot a lot of Jewish community was suffered already in the First World War, not only in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Let me let me come back to to our reality right now and ask you more moral and and philosophical questions. So, how do you estimate this this war of Russia against Ukraine? Because there is lots of it that just goes beyond a simple geopolitics. When Russians are really bombing the shootings very cynically at civilians in in Bucha in Hostomel, understanding that these are civilians on civilian cars with their children, that they are not military and they're just cynically shooting at them. When they are bombing, I've seen so much of it with my own eyes. For example, in towns like Izum in eastern Ukraine, when they are bombing with huge bombs the multi-story buildings in which there are civilians living and even k- killing people which are in the basement. So the bombs were so huge that they're killing people who are hiding in the basement. We talked with you about the civilian residential buildings in Uman, in Dnipro, and many other places. And uh, I, we, we all still struggle to understand it because you can launch a war, you can say, okay, we are against NATO expansion, we will control Kiev, but still it doesn't, expa- doesn't explain this, this utmost cruelty that we see from, from the Russian soldiers very often. What, when you look at this war, what do you think? How, how, how do you reassess uh, your moral stance on it. And at the same time, I will ask you, because I also have seen that you kind of communicated with people from Jewish community from uh, from Ukraine, and they were telling you that, look, under the bombings, they actually uh, have this feeling of this 
kind of a communication with God, a religious vertical, which is which actually gets stronger during these tragic events. Look, first of all, um, as you said, when you when you're using attacking civilians and breaking basically all the rules, uh, even rules of war, it's a form of intimidation. It's very clear that Mr. Putin wants to intimidate and wants to just uh, humiliate. Uh, the, the, big, the big surprise, or not surprise, the big question nobody understands fully is what is his intention exactly? What's the end game? Like, what does he want to accomplish? Um, honestly, I'm surprised because he's not a stupid man. Smart man, a lot of tremendous amount of power and money. Not even sure what did he stand to gain here. Like, what was missing in his uh, legacy, so to speak? You know, I mean, I've read all the theories and I understand that the nationalistic Russian wants to bring back the Russian Empire type of idea. But, but still, he was riding high and could have done so many things. I'm not really understanding. And he waited so long for so many, so many years. Um, so I think that's one of the things that mystifies us all. Because, you know, Hitler, for example, made it very clear what he wanted. He wanted Lebensraum. The Aryan race is superior. He'll kill everyone else unless they serve him. The Jews have to be annihilated. All misfits that he called misfits, I mean, as obscene and disgusting and, and, uh, and uh, that it was, but it was very clear what he wanted, which made it a lot easier to fight the war because it crystallized our moral values. You know what he's, but here what happens is this this ambiguity, this lack of clarity. Like even if someone were to sit down with Mr. Putin and say, "If we surrendered, what do you want? What are your terms? What do you exactly you want?" I don't think anyone has a real clue. So I go back to the, the from the moral and spiritual point of view. I want to say two things. From the moral point of view, as simple as this: every war, even the cleanest wars, unfortunately, are tragedies. Innocent people will be killed. And frankly, who decides who's innocent anyway? Why is a soldier not innocent? He didn't do anything wrong. Um, but especially when you're targeting civilian centers, that is just, uh, it's just not acceptable, period. I would say the same thing if someone indiscriminately started bombing uh, civilian centers in Russia, for that matter, or any country. It's just not, what, what are you doing exactly? That's, that's just not what the civilized uh, people are supposed to be doing. So... That is a very clear moral outrage, period, and just simply should not be tolerated. Um, from a spiritual point of view, I think about it a lot because since my parents were Russian-born, my father's from Moscow, my mother from southern Russia, and also my family, so many of my family are Ukrainians. Rabbi, um, Rabbi Kamenetsky from Dnepr is my first cousin. He's married to my first cousin. So I have family there. I know them well, and I also know the history so I always ask myself, and I'm talking now more of a cosmic, on a cosmic level, is there a deeper message going on here? Is this some type of reckoning happening, historical reckoning? You know, there's always an element of like a market correction. In 1990, when the Soviet Union fell bloodlessly, um, it was, uh, for the Jews for sure, it was a certain emancipation. But, it, and, and, and is this now like the other side of the story? You know, that that was not really so, um, the story wasn't over. So I think of it ahead of time. You know, Putin is not going to live forever. What happens in 10 years from now, five years from now, 20 years from now? Will this, will those that come after him be worse? You know, it's, there are so many, to me, I, I feel personally, if I go for my gut, that this region in the world, I talk now Russia, Ukraine, the whole Eastern Europe, actually, is so filled with so much history that has shaped the modern world that it's not really come to what we call market correction. Like, what is the future of this part of the world? Obviously, we're talking about things should be done, as I said before, in a civil way. But that's how I think about it. I think in terms of like that ultimately they have to come, just like the United States of America was once part of Great Britain, the UK, and then broke off and found its independence and built a great nation. With all its flaws, what's, what's, going to, what's the story with Eastern Europe? Where is it headed? What's the future hold? So even though right now we're under the gun and there's blood being shed, 
But I think some of us who are thinking about the bigger picture want to think, where is this headed? Where would we want it to be headed? Because I find the final point I want to make is that Putin is taking advantage of a major vacuum in leadership in the entire world. And I mean all the countries, including the United States. And when there's, when there's a vacuum, you know, you come in, nobody's going to stand up to you because I feel that there's a lack of a moral, I call it moral spiritual vision among our leaders. At best, the leaders are good administrators. They're firefighters. They are putting out fires, but they don't offering a vision. They're not offering a vision. So in a case like that, Mr. Putin can come in and completely in, in a way not, without anyone really opposing because no one's sharing a passionate vision. And as a result of that, I think a lot of this is happening. And that's what we need to be thinking. What is our vision for the world? What is our vision for each of our countries? Not just don't attack us and so on. These are some of my uh, random thoughts on this topic. Thank you, thank you. I I think that there are some elements in which um, in, in in which we can understand actually Putin, and uh, I think his goal is clear. Uh, I think his goal in Ukraine is that to make Ukraine non-existent, and then he tried to make this to achieve this uh, through kind of a three-day war. He he failed to do that, but then he uh, he actually became much more angry, much more cruel. But then the question, the real question is why he wants Ukraine to, to disappear? What, why Ukraine poses a threat to, for him in his mind to, the, to Russia? Because obviously it, it, it was not posing a threat militarily, politically, and any other terms. And I think there is something wrong and something really psychoanalytical inside Putin's understanding of Russia or even the Russian identity itself, that it kind of a, doesn't feel itself whole without without Ukraine. And the second thing, I think it's it's a clearly moral story because what explains this war to me is certainly not geopolitics, certainly not... Uh, it's, an, it's not fight for resources, it's a not fight for redistribution of power, whatever. There is, there is a real big moral reason in that, and I think this is a sense of impunity. So Putin, and as you said, he, he actually fills the vacuum, and one of these vacuum is that, okay, I will do this, and you will do nothing in return. You will not be able to do anything in, re in return. I will hit you, and you will not respond. That's, that's kind of a logic here, and I think it's an old KGB logic, because KGB was developed on this idea that I will do whatever I want to you, and you will do nothing to me. And um, and there is something something inside it. And I, I think Putin is really surprised that Ukrainians and the whole world can respond to it. So in this way, for me, it's it's really a, a war not for territories, not for politics, but but there is really moral moral very deep uh, cause of it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder, like you said, I, it's, no, it's clear he wants to, what, 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 why does he want to erase Ukraine? What, what, what does he gain from that? What do you think? I mean, that's my media. I, I can't understand it exactly. Um, is it just, I mean, is it just the beginning of erasing all the other Moldavia and other, uh, other former republics? Is that the goal, ultimately? Um, it's hard for me to understand that. Uh, that's where I, I, I'm stumped. What, what do you think? Well, well I, I think that there is a, a profound uncertainty in Putin's mind about Russia itself. So he doesn't really understand what Russia is. And, uh, and in his mind, if he cannot turn Ukrainians and Belarusians into Russians, people who speak Russian, who are ethnic Slavs, etc., then what he's going to do with all other ethnicities or with all other nations. And he feels, and, and, and this is this feeling, very macabre feeling and very pervert feeling, that actually uh, the very idea of Ukraine being different from Russia poses a threat to Russian identity. Therefore, all, all what is he saying that Ukraine is a failed state, that it is constructed nation, that it is a nation, uh, you know, imagined by Austrians and Poles and Jews or whatever else, 
it actually says about himself and, and, and about his vision of Russia, that he is profoundly uncertain uh, about what Russia is. He is afraid that if Russia does not expand, it will, it will shrink, it will collapse. And probably this is what this is what is going on. This is what is the beginning of of this fear is now being realized in this war. Yeah, but but you know um, the the challenge is this: Does he have a vision for the future? As as macabre or as 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 absurd as it may be, what is that vision? You know, the fact of the matter is that the United States is the single largest and most powerful economy in the world. You cannot ignore that. You know, no matter what happens in Ukraine, that's not going to change. So is he just buying time? You know, does he have any idea what will happen the next generation? I think not. I don't think he really, I think he's trying to like, you know, like you said, it's a KGB type of approach. You try to play chess as best as you can until you can't play it anymore. You know, he's trying to just maneuver the pieces. I, I, I would have thought that he would have a bigger vision. It may not be a vision we like, but I would think that. I, but it doesn't seem to me that way right now, especially due to the fact that he didn't gain what he wanted early on. You know, it's one thing if he was able to accomplish in three days or five days or whatever. So now it's, now it's a dragged out thing. And, and he has like, in a sense, he says, I have all the time in the world. And then too bad, even though what, what's the benefit? I have no idea. Um, depleting resources besides the goodwill and all of that. So I, I, I honestly, I like to think, I don't think we have control over him. It doesn't seem like he is listening to anyone. It doesn't seem like anyone's using any clout with him. So he just is uh, basically brazenly doing as he sees fit. And um, so the question is, what are we supposed to do? What should the West do? What should the countries do? How do we advise? So that's where I would weigh in on that is, look, we have a moral compass. We must have a vision. You know, during World War II, we had a vision. That's why we fought the war. The vision was a, a free world, not a world under fascism, not a world under Nazis, and not under world under imperial Japan. So here we have to think the same way. We have a vision. We don't want to get, intervene in sovereign states, but when a state has been attacked, we have to be able to protect Ukrainian autonomy and independence and let them decide. Let the Ukrainian people decide what their future is. That is that's the, that, that's the, the West position, but I don't know how strong they are, how long they can last. Um, uh, so frankly, it, it's, it's, it's very intriguing to try to understand Mr. Putin, but I don't know how much difference it's going to make unless he puts it on the table and says, here's what I want and here are the conditions and we can then argue about it. Um, I think it's it's a it's almost a futile attempt. I don't think we are so much different from the World War II in this respect, and I do think that uh, in World War II we had the free world was opposing to Italian and German fascism, uh, which were kind of uh, the expression of these wounded empires, the empires that felt that they are actually. Uh, do not have a future, that their imperialism is in the past, and therefore they try to reinvent it uh, in an ugly way. And this is what is happening in Russia. So this is this trauma from the lost, uh, from lost empire and attempt to come back to the past. Therefore, I agree with you, there is no vision of future in, Pu in Putin. There is this attempt to come back to the past. And and, but for us, the stakes are actually actually similar. Yes, this is a fight for, for freedom, for free world, for, for um, political systems which are based upon the conversation, dialogue, horizontal relations between citizens and not vertical power relations. This is, this right, is what right. it's all about. Look, uh, the, the difference is in World War II, the, because America was attacked, Great Britain was attacked, there was a commonality. Everybody was uh, infuriated here. We're expecting the rest of the world to feel as, uh, as angry as Ukraine feels, meaning that, it, but it's not necessarily this, the case. I'm not, I'm not justifying, you know, because here, if Putin would uh, drop a bomb, uh, God forbid, in other countries, th that would change things. So right now, what's, what we're expecting is that the Western world should unite, and they are to some extent, but probably not as much. And I'm sure as time passes, they're going to be less committed. And that's sad. 
because uh, because Ukraine needs the support of uh, of the Western world. Let's hope the commitments will hold, and we see right now on the front line that this assistance from the free world to Ukraine bears results, and that Russian army essentially is preparing for defense. It no longer is able to advance, and uh, let's really hope that this year we will he- we will see the success of the Ukrainian army against the Russian Putinism, which is. Uh, for me is a continuation of Stalinism and maybe of fascism as well. Thank you so much Rabbi Jakobson, it was fantastic to talk to you and thank you for sharing all your thoughts and all this uh, perspective about Jewish culture, this this is really amazing, thank you. Thank you, it was a pleasure and thank you for having me. This was a podcast series, Thinking in Dark Times by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, a Ukrainian media NGO. We are based in Ukraine. You can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.